In the name of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I truly hope that things have changed from when I was a child. But I suspect, given that some of you here are the same age as I am, or a little younger, or a little older, you may have had the same unfortunate experience. For when I was a child in elementary school, lower school, one of the things that used to happen was that we would get divided up in order to play various games. Teachers would pick two leaders, one for each side, and then those leaders would pick the people they wanted on their team. As you can probably guess, I was never one of the people who was chosen to pick the others. I was always standing in that line waiting to be chosen. And when you're that age, you get chosen for really just a couple of reasons. You get chosen because you're actually good at whatever the game is, or you get chosen because you're friends with the leader. And if you're not either one of those things, you're going to get picked pretty near the end. And it's a pretty demoralizing experience. And given that I had absolutely no aptitude then or now for team sports, I was clearly not getting there because of my great skills. And I wasn't usually friends with the people who had those kind of skills. So I was always at the bottom of those lists. That was pretty depressing. I hope they don't do that anymore. But who knows? But I found myself thinking about that because we are actually talking today, as we did last week in the gospel, about the calling of the disciples, about Jesus picking the people that he wants to be on his team. But it's a very interesting and very different model. Now, last week in this, in two different Gospels, we heard about the call of Peter and of Andrew, though it's different between the two Gospels. In John, it's Andrew who becomes the first disciple and calls Peter, and in Matthew's Gospel from today, they seem to be called at once, but most of the focus seems to be here on Peter. So we don't even really know who was chosen first. What we do know is that they were fishermen. Then we find out about James and John, who are also fishermen, but we discover them not in their boats casting their nets, but up on shore with their father mending those nets. And think about some of the others who are called. We have John, who is mostly described in John's Gospel as the beloved disciple. He seems to be the one with kind of a smooth path, who seems to align himself with Jesus' ministry and just keep going forward, which makes him quite different, of course, from Peter, who is three steps forward and two steps back and given to emotional outbursts. Then, of course, there's also Thomas who gets called somewhere along the way, and Thomas earns the nickname of Doubting Thomas because Thomas is the one who needs to ask the questions. Often the questions everyone else is wondering about, but he is the one who speaks up 
In that famous passage where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and you know the way, Thomas is the one who says, nope, no, we don't. Can you please tell us something more about that way? Thomas, known for his questions, which we attribute to doubt, though I think that's a little unfair. And then, of course, it's worth remembering that James and John, those net menders, are also known as the sons of thunder, which suggests that they are also prone to some outbursts, probably angry outbursts, and we certainly know they're the ones who had the audacity to ask Jesus, or at least have their mother ask Jesus, if one of them could sit on the right or one of them could sit on the left. Now, the other disciple we know something about, there are a lot where we don't know much beyond their names, but one of them is Matthew. And Matthew, we know, was a tax collector. Huh. Some know about fishing. Some know about mending nets. Some, it seems, know about money. And even more, some know about how the political world works, because if you were a tax collector, you were actually working for Rome. Of course, that also meant that his fellow Jews despised Matthew, so they probably weren't all that excited when he joined the group. And then the last one I want to mention, though certainly not least, is St. Paul. Now, he was, of course, not one of the 12. He was called to be a disciple, an apostle after the resurrection. But Paul's credential? Well, Paul was a Pharisee, which meant that he was incredibly learned. But he was mostly known to the other disciples as the man who was persecuting the first Christians and taking it so far that he goaded the mob into stoning Stephen, the first deacon in the church, to death. Not exactly the credential you'd think you'd be looking for in a disciple. But that, of course, is part of my point. There is nothing that automatically links these disciples one to the other, though we have a couple of pairs of brothers. It's not even clear entirely, given what we know about them when they're first called, what gifts they might possibly have. And in fact, some of them, I'm sure, thought that they had no gifts to offer. And yet, they were all of them called. So what does that say to us? Because whether we often think of ourselves this way or not, we too are each called to be disciples. And Jesus doesn't pick us, at least if we can go from the first ones he called, because we have just the very best list of gifts to offer. I expect we have some. Fishermen becoming fishers of people. Net menders being called to be part of the grand project to mend the world. Matthew with some knowledge of how the world works. I expect we have some gifts, but maybe you can't figure out what yours are. Maybe you can only find yourself thinking, Maybe somebody else is a disciple, but that couldn't be me. And if you are one of those people, 
that I want to share with you a wonderful quote from Phillips Brooks, the author of A Little Town of Bethlehem, but also one of the great preachers in the history of the church and the priest who built Trinity Church in Copley Square. He's actually featured uh, here on the pulpit. If you want to look at the carving, he's holding the church. But Phillips Brooks, who said, the only way to get rid of your past is to make a future out of it, because God will waste nothing. God will waste nothing. All that prosecutorial zeal that Paul had turned him into probably one of the best people to explain and speak with passion about the gospel that the church has ever known. His past was taken, and God made a future out of it. And I raise this because, sadly, the church often forgets how different from one another we are and how different from one another we are actually meant to be. We forget how much we need all of those differences. And it is St. Paul who talks about it in another part of his letter to Corinth, about that variety of gifts. Gifts we think are important, gifts we think aren't worth anything, every last one of them essential to the body of Christ. When we forget, we find ourselves falling into affinity groups, the people whose experience is like ours, whose passions are like ours, whose race is like ours, whose age is like ours, whose education is like ours, whose way of worshiping is like ours. Certainly the church has been splitting itself up this way pretty much from the very beginning. We have more denominations than many of us can possibly count. And while sometimes we are broken into denominations about things as simple as varied ways of worship, often the divisions are much more deep and more painful. And when there is a split in the church, one that we've experienced in our own lifetime, we know just how vicious Christians can be to one another. But as I say, it goes back to the beginning. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Paul. And the one who gets it right, I belong to Christ. The only reason we are gathered together is to be the body of Christ to be the body of Christ in the world and for the world. And because the world is full of so many different kinds of people, broken people and people who are successful, people who are young and old of all races and a gazillion cultures, we need everybody in. So how do we keep ourselves mindful of that, mindful of that so that when we talk about the gospel, we talk in ways that can invite everyone. The truth is, my telling you we need to do this 
may be helpful for an hour or two, if that, but it won't sustain you. But Jesus, who was wise enough because he was God's wisdom in the flesh, knew just what to do. He began it with who he called. He ended it with the last occasion when he gathered them all together. For on that last occasion, on the night of the Last Supper, at that Passover meal, when they were all gathered around the table and probably thinking as they had many times, I can't believe we're the people Jesus called. Jesus reminded them that he loved them. And he said, this bread, this is my body given for you. This cup and this wine, this is my blood shed for you. And whenever you drink this, whenever you drink this blood or break this bread, do this in remembrance of me. We share the meal at that table every Sunday at all of our services on Sunday. And we do that so that we can, in fact, remember the love of God poured out for us by Christ on the cross, but also so that we will always remember that Christ did not do that for me or for you or for you, but for us all, that we might be one body. We need to hear the word of Scripture and all that Jesus teaches. We need to offer up our prayers and listen for God's voice speaking to us. We need to take our faith out into the world together so that the world might know the good news. But we need always to gather again at this table, knowing that we are gathered not by habit or tradition, but by Christ himself, so that we would be able to know to the depth of our souls that the cross and Christ's offering of his body and blood may be foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us, all of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, and God does not choose sides. Amen.